Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey folks, Zach Osmer here, you Insider, Indianapolis Star. It's Mind Your Banners for Wednesday, November 16th. And Chronic, we're back. We are back. It's been a long time, man. It has been. Dustin, Dustin kind of railroaded you out. Yeah, Elwood's not real happy yeah, about the, that. The dog, the He's dog's, the dog's dancing. No, he loves Dustin. We'll power through it. We all love Dustin. We miss him. We we enjoy reading his stuff at uh, at the Indy Star, covering the Pacers now. Yeah, but no, uh, Dustin did uh, did a far better job than I ever thought, uh, dreamt of. Yeah, I wouldn't go that in, in this chair. But it's good to have you back. We're at the uh, Mind Your Banners E Studio for the first time in what seems like forever. I think pre-COVID, probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those were di- those were different days. Those were different days. They were. It, you know, it seems so long ago. It seems like just yesterday at the same time. I mean, every time I put on a jacket right now, I'm still pulling out old masks, you know, yeah. unused masks. My uh, son is done with masks. Like, there's one or two places in town. Wonder Lab still requires masks some days, and he claimed yesterday he couldn't breathe through his mask. And I was like, you can breathe through your mask for two years, buddy. You'll be fine. We just had to go. Uh, my wife had a procedure this morning we, at the, the facility she was getting treated at. You have to wear a mask, obviously. It's yeah. a healthcare facility, and, you know, there's a lot of stuff still circulating. Um is there ever? I, but I got new glasses since the mask mandate went off. Uh, and I'm sitting, I can't see again. And I'm like, what is this evil sorcery? And I'm like, I probably never would have picked this pair out had I known how bad they are with masks. But fortunately, this is a uh, no mask required. We're all very sick and on antibiotics. Yeah. Uh, but we're on the back end of it right now. Yes, everyone in Bloomington is sick right now. And it, most people, it's not COVID. It's just the more boring stuff, sinuses and uh, flus and bronchitis and all that uh but you don't need this this is not the mind your banners health uh health special we're gonna talk basketball today we're gonna talk men's and women's uh the women had a a very big win i think both you know sort of literally for their season and and you know sort of bigger picture on monday night um when you have the second kid you start forgetting what day of the week it is we'll start with the men um tyler and i tyler techman and i talked after the bethune Cookman game about kind of what we had seen from this team through two games. Chronic, I want to get your thoughts on that. And then I do want to look at Xavier, a team that's already 3-0. and um, But I think first and foremost, I mean, I just I want your, your thoughts on this team. All the statistical profile stuff looks good. You would be worried if any of it didn't. Um, but this is at very least, it's, it's a team that has comfortably covered in both of its games. As we know, good teams win, great teams cover. It's a team that I think has looked more exciting. And it's a team that, you know, listen, the national media sees these early games the same way the local media does, which is don't make too much out of it. Glean what you can, but mostly just sort of make mental notes for games like Friday night when you're going to see a a much tougher opponent. Um, But it is interesting to me that I think Indiana's changed a few minds already this season. Yeah, unlike the health of the general populace in town right now, I think the health of the uh, the basketball Hoosiers, men's and women, is uh, extraordinarily strong right now uh, to start this season. Um, pretty remarkable how quickly uh, Mike Woodson has been able to to build uh, not just a, a talent level uh, for his team, uh, but a depth of talent, I think, uh, which is probably um, – 
in addition to just how impactful some of the freshmen, some of the new additions are going to be to this program over the course of the season, uh, just how much more effective his bench has become. Um, and, you know, quite honestly, I feel like the last couple of games with the starters being a little bit slow to get it in gear, uh, it's been the bench that really provided the spark that got them locked in defensively, uh, got them into a rhythm offensively. And when the starters have come back in, uh, really found a way to just keep that going and, and to basically roll throughout. Now, obviously, uh, you know, with this strength of schedule they've had thus far, uh, it, all the usual caveats about what to read from it. But, um, you know, it seems like this team is playing with a lot more confidence. It seems like they're playing with uh, a lot more trust. Uh, the ball's moving really well so far early on. Uh, the defense, while it's kind of been slow to start, uh, is quickly rounding back into the form that we came to expect from uh, Mike Woodson's team after last season. So, um We'll know a whole lot more after Friday's trip to Cincinnati, I feel like. Uh, but it's probably as promising at this juncture, uh, you know, with one week under their belt as it's been in a long, long time here in Bloomington. Yeah, so, I mean, again, we'll talk about Xavier in a minute. I, I, I'm glad you bring the bench up. That is maybe the most sort of fascinating kind of personnel thing here for me. You will see good bench performances across the course of games like the ones Indiana's played in large part because teams like Moorhead State and Bethune-Cookman have no depth compared to teams like Indiana. So maybe your starters on adrenaline and spunk can play, you know, even or close to it for seven or eight minutes. But then as you have to go to your bench and Indiana gets to go to its bench and they're wheeling out top 50 players and guys that have been, you know, in a Big Ten program for three years, four years – and you're bringing out guys that would tend to make up the bench at places like Moorhead State or Bethune-Cookman. I'm not picking on anybody, but I think everyone can understand what that means. You know, benches tend to the, the benches tend to look better, I guess is my point, in games like that because the, the, the mismatch is even more pronounced. On the other hand, it's three games in a row now, if you include the St. Francis exhibition, where the starters started slow, which is a concern Mike Woodson needs to address, but the bench just sort of flipped the switch and, and just really like was the launching pad for what wound up being really impressive performances. I bring that up because not a lot of college teams have depth. I mean, genuine depth, good, you know, multiple double digit scoring threats off the bench kind of depth. And I don't mean averages, but I mean like can come in and get you 15, 18 off the bench on any given night, you know, have the depth to, let a, a race Thompson or a trace Jackson Davis get into foul trouble and replace them with somebody in a Jordan Geronimo or a Malik renew where the, you know, the, the production level does not fall off for the 15 minutes. You've got to play without trace Jackson Davis. Cause he's got two first half fouls or something like that. I, I am, I am very curious about this bench and how it develops because I think it is possible that this isn't, the performances we've seen so far have not just been about the competition. They've also been because this team is genuinely deep and is genuinely going to give teams trouble. And when you sort of cast that against, in particular, a Big Ten that is so uncertain, where teams are probably still going to be working through rotations and lineups and figuring out best combinations well into January, if you're not just experienced and good in the starting five, but you've got a really deep bench that can almost play as a unit unto themselves in a way. You kind of have the starting four, the bench four, and then the two point guards that sort of bridge across between the two. That is a that is a a, a, a it's a big weapon. I mean, it is a very big weapon for this this program to have 
in pursuit of what it talks about as a goal, which is a Big Ten title. Well, and where we saw a lot of the uh, the substitutions in Mass last season, um, it, it seems like Woodson has been more willing to to kind of intersperse uh, reserves and starters uh, a little bit more sporadically, uh, individually, uh, than what he did in the past. And I think that's in probably part of it is just him kind of feeling out his, his roster and, and, and the lineups and the rotation possibilities, um, but also just the dynamicism that it may give him in uh, creating different matchup issues. Uh, because with that added depth, you've got a lot of guys who can bring you know vastly different angles uh, of attack, uh, vastly different skill sets, uh, depending on how you want to look. And, you know, I'm fascinated to see exactly how that goes. Uh, having spent much of last year, um, you know, kind of seeing that platoon or almost that hockey style sub pattern. Uh, this year, I think Woodson feeling maybe a little more confident putting guys in, uh, in different spots than what, what they've been accustomed to. Um, but I think you've got to feel really good about just how responsive uh, pretty much most most of the uh, the reserves have been uh, when they've been called upon. Uh, I tweeted it the other day during the game. You know, it's cupcake season, uh, but there seems to be a whole lot of synergy in the gym and on the floor right now uh, with some of these rosters. Um, and it's it's probably going to get really tight, uh, and we'll probably get a you know Woodson's probably going to tip his hand a little bit uh, come Xavier. Uh, as far as who he wants in what situations throughout the course of the game, assuming it's going to be uh, you know far more competitive than what uh, what Indiana's seen thus far. The point guard thing is the other interesting part of this, and I think this is the other thing that that these two things kind of dovetail. But they, you're curious, sort of, you know, how Mike Woodson, how consistent he is from Morehead State, Bethune Cookman to Xavier, or from Miami, Ohio, Little Rock, Jackson State to North Carolina, that sort of thing. It seems like he. He thinks he can strike this balance of starting Xavier Johnson and Jalen Huchifino together and then essentially sort of leaving one in for extended minutes at the front end of the rotation, bringing the other one in for extended minutes at the back end and, you know, balancing the load between them. Now, these games, you're obviously allowed a lot of garbage time. You don't have to worry about it. Jalen Huchifino played 27 minutes um, against Moorhead State. Xavier Johnson only played 20. He had a little bit of foul trouble in that game. You go down to Bethune-Cookman. Huchifino played 28 minutes. Xavier Johnson only played 19. Um, you know, it, it, we'll see kind of how this continues. I, I'm just sort of the other piece of the kind of the rotation question. For a coach that clearly thinks about rotations in an – I mean, I, I think it is fair to say now he thinks about them in an NBA sort of way mm -hmm. of I'm almost going to build a second unit and then – have a first unit, a second unit, and then my challenge to myself is is to figure out how to cycle through that in you know what the, the the sort of the best sort of cycling process is in terms of who comes in and who comes out and when and why. Um, not just oh I have three that I count on on the bench and you know we're going to get them in there to to mix up minutes, but like a genuine there's going to be a time on the floor where I look out there and I I call it my second unit in my head. The thing he's going to have to, you know, the, the bridge he's going to have to gap, or the gap he's going to have to bridge, other way around, is those two point guards together and how he disperses minutes and also basically just, you know, how those rotations work. Who stays in? Who goes out? You know, who plays? Do you, do you play more at the front end? Do you play more at the back end of the half? Whatever it might be. Um, it's going to be interesting, I think, 
as these games get tougher, and particularly I think these first these first two segments of the season of Moorhead State, Bethune Cookman leading into Xavier, and then Miami, Ohio, Little Rock, Jackson State leading into North Carolina, it's going to be interesting to kind of see, you know, if we can take the fragments from the games Indiana should win and overlay them onto what works or doesn't in the tougher, more difficult games in these first seven of the season. Yeah, and, you know, well, he's had a lot of freedom to kind of play with some of those uh, those combinations. Um, my hunch is, going forward, especially as the, the degree of difficulty starts getting ratcheted up significantly, um, who answers the bell on defense? Um, you know, one of the things that, that was really apparent last year is they didn't spend a whole lot of time in the preseason working on the offensive concepts. That was very, very late to arrive. Uh, you got a sense real early on where Woody wanted these guys to be defensively. Uh, this year, the progression um, that's already evident offensively just kind of gives you a sense that he's pretty comfortable with where, you know, a lot of the foundational pieces are defensively. But, you know, it, it seems like it's always safe to to assume Woody's going to default when it comes to some of those those lineup questions. Who's given him the best work on the defensive side? Um, you know, obviously, it's, it's you got to play on both ends of it, uh, but he's made no bones. That's going to be the type of program he wants to run here. Um, and I think that's been one of the more heartening parts about, you know, we talk about the second unit and their performance. Uh, it seems like each game so far, they've been the one that really flipped the switch and got it dialed into the degree that he wants to see. So um, as we get to maybe a shorter bench, maybe a little tighter rotation, uh, which of those guys are able to consistently step up and, and get those stops and create the pressure that uh, that Woodson's going to want to see from them? Um, because this looks like a team that when they're able to get stops is going to be able to uh, get out um, in transition. Uh, it, fun basketball. I mean, so far from what we've seen when these guys get out in space. Uh, it's a really, really pretty game, and they seem to—they uh, seem to have a lot of horses that are that are not only capable of doing it, but are kind of biting at the bit to get into uh, into the fast break offense. So, I, I think that's probably going to be one of the things I'm most closely watching when they go to go to Xavier this this Friday. Uh, just see who answers the call. Uh, first true road game uh, of the season. Uh, you know, a lot of these guys right now knocking out first, left, and right. Um, you know, first time playing in front of a big crowd, first real game, first points, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's always a big test for these guys to see just how jittery they are uh, when they step into a hostile environment for the first time and who's able to, you know, to sustain that that intensity, that focus uh, consistently throughout the course of the game. So um, this is going to be, I think, a, a very eye-opening weekend for the Hoosiers uh, as the table gets set for some really, really uh, tough competition uh, in the next month ahead. Sort of a snapshot of Xavier. They're three and zero, three comfortable wins. Well, Fairfield was probably a little closer. I mean, I don't think it was ever really in doubt. Um, Fairfield kind of they won the fourth quarter by eight points. If you look at things the way Ken Bond breaks them up by quarters, they won the the first quarter by seven points, um, and then they excuse me, sorry, they won the first quarter by seven points and then faded from there. They were up twenty one fourteen and they lost seventy seventy eight sixty five. So. You know, basically, after kind of an early surge, they got outscored uh, sixty-four to forty-four. If if you wanted me to do the math very quickly in my head, um, I didn't bring you over here to do math. If we're being honest, they've also beaten Morgan State and Montana, twenty-seventh um, in the country in adjusted efficiency offensively. In particular, um, they draw fouls, they rebound the ball well offensively. 
Um, they're shooting well from behind the three-point line. They don't take a ton of threes. They've only attempted 44 threes in three games, but they're 20 of 44, so they've hit them when they've taken them. they got a, a couple good big Zach Fremantle, a senior, Jack Nungy, a, a player that people around this part of the state will remember well from his time at Evansville in Iowa, um, who's also a senior. They may be missing Colby Jones, um, who was out for the Fairfield game uh, because of an ankle injury. And I'm, I'm, this is me reading Sean Miller's quote from earlier in this week. The good news is the x-rays were negative and he made progress from Monday to Tuesday. I know Colby is hopeful he can play in parentheses against Indiana. We're certainly not going to put him at risk. It's going to be his decision, but we'll, it will also be making sure he's able to play. We're hopeful that he can. Um, you know, I mean, it sounds like he's going to be a game time decision all the way up through Friday. It sounds if I'm if I'm reading, if I'm trying to parse that quote, it sounds like he's maybe less likely to play than not. And I think coaches in general, I know Indiana would be a big scalp for Sean Miller. First big home game back at Xavier. First year back at Xavier. On the other hand, you don't risk guys in November that might be able to help you in February and March. Um, I, I think it's a good team. I think, you know, obviously anyone around should have a healthy respect for what Sean Miller can do as a coach. Um, I don't, you know, it... it it's obviously at the same time a team that, you know, has gone, has not finished with a winning record in, in Big East play since 2018, since Chris Mack's last season there. They went 23-3 and last year, but they finished 53rd in Ken Palm's final rankings. Um, and they lost, I think they, I think they won the NIT, didn't they, last year? I think they did. Um, or at very least, they, uh, I'm looking at it now. They won, they won a postseason tournament last year. Yes, it was the NIT. Um, but then Travis still got fired anyway. Um... It, it it's a good team. It is probably the worst of the big four in the non-conference, as as much as we can say today. Certainly the most uncertain of the four, new head coach, you know, sort of new lineup, new system, couple injury concerns. But the Centos Center is a tough place to play. It, it is historically one of the tougher uh, road venues in the Midwest. It's a Friday night game. It's going to be turned up in there. An early night game at that too. It's a it's a weird time slot. This this is a, a I think a, a really good sort of first litmus test for Indiana right now. Anyway, top forty Ken Palm team. It's going to be interesting to see how they handle this. Now you know I keep thinking back. Um, if you remember the uh, the 2011-2012 season, Cody's first year, a uh, lot of promise, uh, which was uh, a welcome sight back in Bloomington again at the time. Uh, a lot of questions. And uh, they had the game, uh, NC State, I believe it was the uh, ACC uh, Big Ten Challenge, if memory serves. It was the first, uh, similar to this one, first true road game of the year. And uh, the Hoosiers went down there, yeah. met a little bit of adversity early on, and uh, found a stride. And proceeded to carry that, if some of you may recall, into a, a particular game against a, a border rival here at Assembly Hall that really just kind of blew the roof on the trajectory of where this team was going to head that season in, in the, the year to come. Um, this one's got a lot of that feel for me. Uh, obviously, a lot of promise, a lot of questions. Um, but again, you know, coming out of, of cupcake season with just you know two regular season games on your belt, some exhibitions that, you know, they make you feel good. It's fun to watch them get up and down, put up 100 points. Um, everybody looks great against lesser competition, uh, but you get the sense that there's a whole lot more potential uh, at a higher level of competition. Uh, but that's all prognostication until you see them actually lace them up 
against a team like this. So I think from a scheduling standpoint, this is probably uh, an ideal tune-up for the road that they have ahead. Uh, again, with you know, with the trip to Kansas, with the the matchup against. Uh, Arizona and Vegas, uh, not to mention, you know, they've got to go to Piscataway in just a couple of weeks and start Big Ten play. And, you know, that's one of those things where it's real easy to look over uh, the brand name of Rutgers on the schedule. Uh, but to be on the road in the Big Ten uh, in the very, very beginning of December is is no small task for any program. I don't care if you're picked first or last in the league or anywhere in between. Um, you can never take a road game in the Big Ten lightly, and we've seen far better teams uh, stumble in just that manner in the past. So this is one of those opportunities, I think, not only for them to uh, to kind of punch it up a little bit from, from the level they've been playing at, uh, but to also really get focused because – this is going to be a murderer's row, and for the first time uh, in many, many years, they're going to be wearing the target on their back. Uh, the weight of the expectations is something you know pretty much nobody on this roster, at least, has had to carry here. Uh, but I think that's one of the uh, one of the noticeable impacts on this team is uh, you look at Hood Shafino, you look at Renew. Uh, these guys understand that weight uh, because they've competed at the highest level uh, in the prep circuit, and. Uh, and brought home some hardware. So curious to see how that translates, that attitude, that confidence translates uh, at the Power 5 level here in Division One. Um, I think the two guys that seem most, most worth mentioning for me are uh, Nunji, who is actually leading Xavier at 18 points per game. Um, he's 5 of 8. Don't make it too much of what it is, but he's 5 of 8 from behind the three-point line. He shot 36.5% last year from three on 96 attempts. So despite being a seven-footer, um, he's got genuine range. He's got genuine face-up game. And then the other guy that I think is really interesting is Zach Fremantle, um, who is a senior. Um, he's averaging 15.7 points, 7.7 rebounds, 5.7 assists. He actually had a triple-double against Fairfield uh, on, was that Tuesday night? Uh, 15, 13, and 10 assists, plus six turnovers and two blocks in 39 minutes. So that tells you, I think, a few stories at once. He's a high-usage player at both ends of the floor. He's an important player. He's a good passer. He can make some mistakes, six turnovers. Big one for me, 39 minutes. You know, in a game that ultimately Xavier wins by 13, uh, he's he plays all but one minute of that game. Xavier's going to count on him. They're going to lean on him. And this, I think, is going to be a test of – what we probably perceive as, you know, sort of personnel-wise, the great strength of this this IU team is its front court depth. If you're going to be a good front court, you're going to have to deal with, you know, matchups like this where you got a couple different guys in the front court that can score, guys that can move around a little bit. Again, going back to Nunji, he shoots some threes. Fremantle, I don't think has attempted a three um, this season. I think he's a little bit more of an interior player, but he's played 70 minutes across – the last two games, a 13-point win over Fairfield and a 22-point win over Montana. So, like, Sean Miller counts on him. He's not – it's – you know, it's it's not a situation where they've got a ton of obvious depth. They are going to give you – you know, what you see is what you get with them. Um, Indiana's going to have to be prepared to basically defend a front court that's got multiple good bigs, multiple good forward center types, and guys that I think are going to move – your body's around a little bit more than what you might see traditionally in, in a, a slower paced big 10 game. Yeah. And you know, this is also one of those matchups. I feel like when you, uh, when you're playing the lower level competition games, like, like teams are want to do this time of year. Um, I, I always feel like 
the reliability of the big men play is probably the most suspect. Uh, the difference, you know, there's only so many really good bigs in the league. Uh, I feel like there's a lot of really good guards all over the country, uh, you know, virtually every level of basketball. And obviously there's, there, there's certain skills and tools that separate them uh, at the various echelons. But as good as IU's front court has looked thus far, uh, this is one of those opportunities where just based off the lineup, um, you know, IU hasn't seen anything close to this, this kind of height uh, in a minute now. And the way that height and length can really, uh, really confound things uh, for teams still trying to figure stuff out, uh, they're going to be as dependent on ball movement as Indiana is, as well as rebounding, uh, I think is going to provide a great test, uh, not just for the bigs, uh, but also for, you know, um, the, the, I guess, you know, there's, we don't do numbers anymore. Uh, the middle-sized basketball players on the roster, uh, you know, the threes and the fours and some of those interchangeable pieces IU has there, uh, but as well as the guards. And, uh, you know, I think that's probably one of the more promising things from the backcourt play last week. Uh, I use guards uh, seem to be really, really aggressive on the rebound, uh, really aggressive on the defensive end, and kind of making some of the bigs' lives easier. So uh, curious to see how that works. One thing, they seem to be uh, far more active from a hand standpoint this year. Uh, I feel like you know, if everybody remembers one of Tom Crean's favorite categories, deflections, uh, they seem to be really active in creating a lot of tip balls, a lot of deflections, keeping plays alive, breaking stuff up. So uh, it, it's going to put a, a greater emphasis on on that type of effort as well, uh, I think, as you start to go up against a matchup such as what uh, Xavier is going to put on the floor. And I think that, that leads into maybe one other thing to bring up with Xavier. Um, 241st nationally right now in turnover percentage. They're turning the ball over on 20.9% of possessions. Now, they're turning opponents over on almost 22% of possessions, so that's very good. But if if you look in particular, um, they had uh, against Morgan State, they turned the ball over 20 times, which was 24.6% turnover rate for that specific game. And against Fairfield, they turned the ball over 17 times, which was 23% for that specific game. In the middle, Montana, they were very good turnover rate under 14%, but my point is they are prone to some mistakes, and that's not uncommon. It's a it's a new system. It's a new coach. You know, you, you're, you're trying to play in a way that is a little bit foreign to you, but when you talk about an Indiana team that I think it's fair to say is established across the last year plus that it's very good defensively, not necessarily an incredibly high turnover team. They have been through these first couple games, I don't know that that's necessarily something you count on continuing, but not a team that presses high, that traps in the half court, that, that you know, sort of is is built to force a lot of mistakes, but certainly one that is steady and sturdy and can capitalize on those mistakes when they are made. Again, these are all early season results, but if you're if you're grabbing the bits and pieces off of Xavier's sort of statistical profile, that um, that turnover percentage is is a bit of a concern um, just because, you know, quite... And, and I think a lot of them are steals, too. That's the other part of it. The, their opponent's steal percentage is, is 15.9%, which is 346th nationally. Um, they are committing, it seems like anyway, on paper, live ball turnovers that you would think Indiana could could capitalize on. Color me shocked that that would happen from a Miller coach team. In the Archie, early. Archie never had problems with turnovers. They had some offensive issues. Well, they had offensive issues, but turnovers were not typically among them. I mean, Archie's worst turnover percentage in four years was eighteen point three percent. That's that's better than all but one of Tom Green's turnover percentage 
numbers. I mean, like, it, it, it hey, listen, Archie was what he was at Indiana. Turnovers were not his problem. No, over the over the course of the season, they they struggled to get out of the gates. Oh, I know. They they no, they struggled offensively, but they, what, turnovers weren't the issue. They the inability to make shots was the issue. <laughs> Which Indiana seems to have uh, done a fairly good job of addressing this offseason. Uh, and another one of those statistics that you know this far into the year, you kind of highlight. Let's see where this one moves when the rubber hits the road against. Uh, you have to forgive us. Our live studio audience is not really feeling this portion <laughs> of it. Um, but no, they uh, they have been shooting at a really, really unreal clip considering where they're coming from here recently. How that holds up uh, a- against a team like Xavier is going to be, I think, one of those that, that in, a lot of Indiana fans are going to watch as the season goes on uh, because with the Big Ten being what it always is and what it's likely to be again this year, but with the non-conference this year, uh, you know, a couple percentage improvement from the free throw line as well as from the three-point line is probably going to be the difference between wins and losses. We also want to uh, talk, and, we, and we'll, we'll dedicate the back half of the show today to the IU women's team. Um, we probably have not, quite frankly, given them enough um, sort of attention in the last couple of years on this podcast. Um, obviously, they have had a couple of the most successful seasons in program history. This one always fascinated me because this this one, Chronic, was sort of going to be a testament to durability, you know, in the sense that, that Terry Morin got that core group together, kept it together for two or three years. Some of those players had to move on, obviously, um, you know, graduated, ran out of in, in Ali Patberg's case, somehow managed to run out of eligibility after all these years. Um, and. Terry Morgan kind of did what what she's done, which is is find this blend of returning players, Grace Berger, Mackenzie Holmes, Chloe Moore McNeil, going out and accentuating with some really good transfers, a couple of intriguing freshmen, and now you've got, you know, kind of a new, you know, core to go with that 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 carries on a little bit of kind of the muscle memory of success of the last two or three years, but augments it with some some needed you know sort of I don't know fresh legs fresh ideas whatever you want to say um this was always kind of going to be a test to me of basically the formula was it just getting you know sometimes it happens where you just get a good core together and and that core finds something as a group that wins them a lot of games and then as it starts to come apart things start to regress Things don't look like regressing right now. Indiana's three and zero, two dominant wins as you would expect to start the season, uh, and then a really impressive, I, I thought, I mean, borderline commanding performance in Knoxville against a ranked Tennessee team uh, on Monday night, seventy nine to sixty seven win that I think Indiana led pretty much from bell to bell. Yeah, um, it, it wasn't like it was dominant in the sense that Tennessee was competitive for long stretches, but you watched especially in you know, late third, fourth quarter situations. Indiana was in control of that game. To go on the road to Thompson Bowling, Tennessee is expected to compete at or near the top of the SEC this year. They've got a couple early season losses, this being one. Um, but to go on the road in an environment like that, I mean, this is a test passed emphatically, both for this team's credentials as top 10, top 15 level, and also for the idea that you know, this sustains. Yes, some of the players leave. Some players that have played big minutes for Indiana in the last three or four years move on. But the the success and the process sustain. Now, you know, you talk about, it's so cliche, teams talk about, you know, whether they're rebuilding, no, it's, we're reloading. Um, 
Terry Morton's entire career at Indiana has been just consistently taking uh, a really solid core group and not only finding a way to replace them, uh, but seemingly to keep stepping the level up uh, over and over each year. You know, we, I wondered how, how's this program go or where's it going to go when you lose uh, players like Tyra Buss, Amanda Cahill. And then she turns around and says, well, let me introduce you to, uh, you know, Alexa Goulbe, <laughs> um, uh, Allie Patberg, you know, and now all of a sudden, um, you know, you're bringing in working the transfer portal, the international market, uh, retaining core pieces, uh, and really just getting the absolute most out of them. Looking at you, Mackenzie Holmes and Grace Berger, uh, it, it's been nothing short of remarkable uh, for her to sustain that. And you need look no further than uh, across the parking lot at 17th Street to see how just how difficult it is to grow a program in that fashion, uh, especially once you've tasted that, that level of success, uh, the expectations, um, the level of competitiveness that you now face every time you lace them up, uh, especially in, in conference. Uh, it, it's just been nothing short of, of amazing uh, and really cool to watch. You know, having seen, um, you know, I got to watch Terry Moran's high school team uh, play in the Indiana Final Four, and to see what what a team of scrappy girls can do uh, when they really lock in together uh, and find that chemistry. It's. I was just talking to a friend of mine last night who was actually on one of those teams uh, before she had a knee injury that ended her uh, her career. A whole lot of Donna Sullivan and Lynn Dunn's footprints on the program that Terry Moore has built, the way they play, the way they develop, and the way that they just keep bringing it in waves every single year. Um, you know, unlike the men's team, uh, she seems to do it with a far, far smaller rotation. Uh, but she gets so much out of that core group. It's really, uh, it's really difficult to argue with the process. And I think it's. I mean, I asked her something about this at, at Team Media Day. Um, I'm fascinated by the, you know, everything in college sports right now is the narrative is transfers, the portal, NIL, you know, remaking your roster, all this, but there were coaches that were having success with that before, before it was mainstreamed in the way that it has been. She was one of them, Terry Moore. And if you think about, you know, she, you know, she inherited, you mentioned some really good players, then she augments them with some good players, with Ellie Petberg, with Brenna Wise, yeah. you know, and, and, and she recruits Mackenzie Holmes, she recruits Alexa Goulbe, she recruits Grace Berger, but now here comes Sydney Parrish, here comes Sarah Scalia. And it's kind of this idea of, you know, it, it some coaches have just that, that ability to spot basically proven talent that will fit. And now, and I'm not saying, oh, this is, you know, this is Terry Morin's perfect moment. She didn't invent the idea of having success with transfers, but suddenly that is more mainstreamed. And so if you are a coach that's got the ability to balance the high school recruiting and the four or five year player development with hitting the portal for impact pieces. And if you're someone who's got a, a firm sort of grip on this is why this player would be successful here as a, a one or two year transfer and this player wouldn't for whatever reason, this is a time when you can really thrive. And this is a time when, when there's a, a lot of success, you know, potentially on the table for you. Um, if you are, uh, if you're able to kind of do it the way Terry Moore has done it. And again, this, this season felt like a test of that a little bit, you know, three big transfers in the door to replace a lot of minutes, a lot of success, 
including, I mean, Nicole Cardano Hillary, including a, a yeah. player that came as a transfer, had a ton of success. And now she has to leave. She ran out of eligibility um, because it really did feel for a while there like that team was going to be together forever. Like they were just they were going to be like the the two thousands Yankees that were just all gonna like they were going to be walking each other to retirement. Um, but this season was also kind of a test of that in a way. And again, listen, they're three and zero. Let, let's let's not the same as we've done with the men. They have a bigger win on the board than the men do. But the same as we've done with the men. Don't get over our skis. It's November sixteenth. But there's an awful lot of evidence here early to suggest the formula just keeps working. Yeah, no, no doubt. And, you know, it's uh, it's not just getting pieces to augment, you know, some pretty big uh, holes in your roster year after year. Um, the, in basketball, uh, the importance of getting the right pieces, the right fits, not just for your for your lineups, but for your program culture. And, you know, the, the culture that Terry Morin's built uh, in Cook Hall and Assembly Hall over there is just extraordinarily tough, extraordinarily gritty. You know, you look at the numbers, the minutes that, that uh, these girls have to pull night in, night out. Uh, it's it's a tough load. And, you know, she's you watch her on the sidelines. Uh, you know, I've seen some of the practices. Uh, she's extraordinarily demanding. Um, and, and it's... It's the type of coaching that, that we all grew up with in Southern Indiana, to be totally honest. Um, it's just really, really tough, tough basketball, both physically and mentally. And to get, um, you know, to get pieces to come in that are able to buy into that, that are able to execute that, uh, that are able to achieve that chemistry required. You know, you look at the defense that she asked these guys to play. Um, it's just, it's nothing, again, it's nothing short of extraordinary. Uh, but one thing that we saw that we haven't seen yet, uh, the poise and composure that this team was just able to demonstrate. Um, obviously, Tennessee is one of the bluest of blue bloods in women's college basketball. Uh, but to go on the road, you know, and this is probably a little bit of a down year uh, by Tennessee standards. Um, but that environment is still everything you would expect from Rocky Top. You know, in the third quarter, when the calls just start going lopsidedly against you and the crowd's into it, and it seems like you're playing five versus eight with the refs. Uh, you know, when Tennessee was able to cut that lead down to four, uh, Hoosiers didn't blink whatsoever. They just locked in. They did what they do. They didn't play desperate. Uh, they just played their game. And next thing you know, it's back up to a double-digit lead. And uh, they iced it pretty, uh, I don't want to say easily, but almost effortlessly, the same way they'd played the entire game to get that lead up to begin with. So, um, you know, we've seen uh, as this team has 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 risen, uh, and its prominence and its success, um, you know, it's always that next step. They're always just one step short of getting to that next level. Uh, slaying a giant like Tennessee is uh, is no small feat along that journey. And, uh, you know, to have seasons in in the Elite Eight, uh, last season against UConn, probably the only other team that really uh, has a hat in the same ring as Tennessee historically in women's college basketball, to turn back around this quickly into the next season and uh, and to get that notch in your belt – uh, I, I think is just going to be, you know, extraordinarily useful for this team from a confidence standpoint, from a respect standpoint going forward. Uh, there's a really, you know, a fair chance uh, with a couple of wins here between now and Monday, Bloomington could quite possibly see two top 10 ranked basketball teams for the first time in history. And uh, it, again, it's just nothing short of, re, of remarkable uh, that both of them are, are, are in this position at, at this point in history. In Tennessee, I mean, you know, you're right, historically, you know, UConn is is one of their few sort of peers. Notre Dame and Stanford probably have yeah. arguments yeah. there as well. 
Um, they're not the paradigm setting Tennessee that they were in, in Pat Summit's, you know, at Pat Summit's peak. But I mean, they were preseason number four. Um, they are one and two now. Those two losses are to then number twelve Indiana and then number eight Ohio State. Big Ten's no joke. This uh, year. No, it's it's not. Ohio State is now tenth. Indiana's ninth. Um, Tennessee is twelfth. If you look at the latest USA Today coaches poll, and we like that because we are, of course, big in that property. Um, but there's also, you know, when I say the prestige factor, I don't mean, you know, beating. It's not like beating Nebraska in football. That's not what this is. Tennessee is good. They've they've actually gotten a lot bad, you know, better, such that they're probably a lot closer to where they were in some Pat Summit's best years, the last few years, after a bit of a dip. They were expected to compete and still are expected to compete at the top of the SEC. That is one of the toughest road environments in the country. And there's just kind of a sense that, like, you know, I I said this um, to somebody in the the summer, early fall, when they brought up the fact that Indiana was going to Tennessee. I said, you know, like, you have to be of a certain status – to even get to go play at Tennessee. Yeah. You know, whether that game is arranged by TV, and I think this one wasn't. I think this is just a, I think this was just arranged between the two schools. But Tennessee's not going to just take some, you know, middle of the road, finished eighth, ninth, tenth Big Ten team at home. That does nothing for them. Um, you, you know, Tennessee wants Indiana because Indiana is a meaningful game. It's an RPI builder. And to go to Tennessee and win that way, there is a real sort of, you know, it's, I mean, you know, there's always the, the, the truism in sports that they say in baseball, momentum is only as good as your next day's pitcher. It can always go south, obviously, you know, a couple slack years of roster building, whatever else. But, you know, from a, a, a standpoint of status, I can't remember a bigger win, certainly a bigger regular season win for IU women's basketball than that one. The idea that you, that that a, a one of the truly sort of vested blue blood powers, a preseason top five team wants you to come play them because it will be it will be good as you said for their schedule, for their strength of schedule, for their reputation, etc. And then you go down there into one of the toughest environments in in the country, and you win the way that you did. You know, multiple players hitting big shots. Multiple players stepping up in key moments. Sydney Parrish, I thought, had a really good game, um, and and I think they spent a lot of time talking about Grace Berger and Mackenzie Holmes. And I get it, but like I thought, you know, you need in the same way we talk about the men's team needs Malik Renew to step up or needs you know Tamar Bates, uh, Tamar Bates to step up. Like Sydney Parrish, Indiana doesn't win that game without Sydney Parrish. Um, that is, it's a win that means a lot for your your postseason resume, your national ranking. It does, though, also say something about your status yeah. as a program and how far you've come. That that you know, I think of it similar to when Indiana went down in baseball and won a series at Florida in 2013. Yes. Yeah, I made that analogy. And, and that on, Florida on team Monday. wasn't very good. It crashed. It, it came back up to Bloomington for the regional. Crashed out after two games. It was basically at the beginning of a cycle that would wind up winning a national title. But everybody was young. All those kids were young. Um, but the fact that you got invited to go play in that game or that series, and then you went down and won it the way that you did, it's just very impressive. It's a statement when that your program's arrived, uh, that you deserve to be considered among that echelon of, uh, of the sport. And I, I think, you know, you'd probably be foolish to recognize that they, 
they've been there or not to recognize it. They've been there now for a couple of years. Uh, but the validation of a road win like that, um, you know, they, they've had a lot of big wins in the last several seasons. Uh, that one though, I, I think is going to be one that when you look back, you know, it's, it's affirmation as to where the program has come. Um, you know, I, it seems like just a couple of years ago we were watching, uh, watching the girls take the NIT tournament and with each passing round assembly hall got fuller and fuller until they were packing the hall. Um, and it really never let up the, the awareness, you know, you just look at, uh, look at the content that's now out there, uh, in the IU sphere, just covering women's basketball, completely unheard of, uh, from where we were literally just, you know, five years ago and some change, you know, yeah. Tyra bus got a lot of headlines, uh, put a lot of shine on the program, but it was really individually focused. Uh, those that were paying attention though, you saw, you saw every step of the, the progression along the way, uh, to them rightfully being, uh, where they are at the moment right now. Uh, now again, all those caveats said, uh, it's, it's going to be a real tough big 10 season. And, you know, they, they at least have that experience having carried that target on their back, uh, coming off their elite eight run. Um, you know, this is a program that's built for it. Uh, but as we mentioned before, uh, before we started rolling tape, uh, with such a short rotation, um, you know, it's one of those things where the trainers are going to absolutely earn their salary, keeping everybody available and healthy throughout the season, uh, because it's, it's going to be a grind and, uh, you know, they just don't have the depth that you see on the men's side right now, even though they're getting similar production across the uh, across the floor. I, I want to close with talking about Grace Berger. She's she's hardly sneaking up on anyone. She led Indiana in points and assists per game last season. Um, she was an All-American. She was an All-Big Ten player. Um, you know, across these first three games, as I'm just looking at her, literally just looking at her stats, she scored 33 points, 17 assists, 17 rebounds. She's, everyone knows she's very good. But like that, you know, I mean that, I mean, first of all, I mean, just her, her line at Tennessee, 13, 10 and six assists obscene, um, to just three turnovers. She was six of 11 from the floor. She hit her only three. She had a moment in the fourth quarter, Tennessee went zone trying to slow Indiana down and Indiana, I think was pretty much just happy to burn clock. Yeah. Yep. And they, I think Sarah Scalia was in the high post. Grace Berger was at the top of the key. Chloe Moore McNeil was was over on the wing. And they essentially just kept passing it back to one another. And I don't know if the instruction came from the bench or not, but with like five or six seconds left on the shot clock, when it was basically time to say, okay, stop burning time and go look for a shot, Grace Berger just took one dribble about a foot inside the three-point line and with a hand in her face just drained a long two. You know, the, the, the phrase, Grace Berger is a bucket. Like it, it, the idea that you have a player on your team that can just sort of decide, I'm going to score and do it. And it doesn't matter how well defended she is. It doesn't matter what defense she's facing. It doesn't matter the situation. Oh, late clock, early clock, whatever. No, it just, there was something. And I'm, I'm not making, you know, the Dave Chappelle, Rick James joke. There was something very cold blooded about it that not a lot of players have the ability not just to score. But to just, you know, I mean, that was the shot that it felt like ice to the game. Mm-hmm. And the idea that Indiana could just come down and basically just burn a bunch of clock, let Tennessee do whatever it wanted defensively, and then just hand it to Grace Berger. And it wasn't like she was in some unholy rhythm. You know, she hadn't hit like 19 of 23 shots or something in the game. It was a perfectly good game from her. But she just stepped in, hit basically the dagger, hand in her face, because it was just time for her to make that shot. 
And put the game away. That is, yeah, that, I mean, that is a, that is a talent that not a lot of players have, even the ones that score a lot of points, even the ones that shoot the ball well, don't have that innate talent to just sort of close and to just be the player that decides who wins the game. Um, you know what we call that? The leader. Okay. She, I just That's what leaders do. They go out and they make winning plays. Um, I, was, I was worried that was going somewhere. You know? <laughs> no, you know what we haven't seen from Grace Berger that I really, really want to see uh, before her time here is done? I would I would buy pay-per-view to see her and uh, Jalen Hood-Chefino play, play an extended game of horse, maybe some elephant hippopotamus, just trading ridiculous jump shots all over the floor uh, because those two have such a knack for those kinds of shots uh, that's just so unique and so uncommon. Uh, to see them do that, to see her do that so consistently well, uh, it's it's worth the price of admission, quite honestly. You know, I, I had tweeted out something uh, a game or two ago. Hudgefino has the best mid-range jumper since blank. And I think I had IU, the IUBB hashtag in there. I was thinking of IU uh, men's basketball players. But it was remarkable. You know, probably 30, 40% of the respondents, Grace Berger. Yeah. Because that's just who she is. And, you know. Uh, it's even more remarkable that that many people are able to recognize that right now, that there's that type of talent in Assembly Hall uh, just happened to be lockered on the other side of Cook Hall. We'll leave it there for today. Um, it'll be fascinating. I mean, these these next couple months, I mean, I think everyone knows the, the, the path on the men's side for the next few weeks. It'll include Xavier. It'll include um, North Carolina, Arizona, Kansas. Uh, I mean, the women... You know that they, they play Auburn in Vegas. They play Memphis in Vegas. They get uh, UNC at home. They've got Illinois and Penn State before Christmas, and then obviously um, around the New Year they dive right back in with Michigan State and East Lansing, Nebraska at home. They get Maryland on January twelfth. It is going to be a fascinating couple months of basketball to really see two teams that I think for the moment, again, caveating who they've played, how often they've played. It's November sixteenth. Everything. I think you have a genuine case to make for both of these teams as Big Ten title contenders. And it's just going to be fascinating to kind of see how the next couple months of basically can you make yourself into that team, can you put yourself in that position, shape up. So, Chronic, it's been wonderful to have you back. Glad to be back. Glad to have you over here. Yeah, well, we'll now that now that Dustin's you know, gotten the hell out of here, we can, we can have more fun again. Um, this has been Mind Your Banners for November 16th, 2022. Thank you so much for listening. For the Indianapolis Star, for the Bloomington Herald Times, I'm Zach Osterman. We will talk to you soon. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.